So, how many people here have been out shooting some fireworks? Maybe you've been like us, just <clears throat> sitting in your backyard watching $10,000 of other people's fireworks go up. That's what, we, that's what we generally do. I mean, I couldn't believe it last night. It was just crazy. They, I mean, it had to be close to $10,000 coming from this one location. Like, that's incredible. I was like, yeah, yeah, I, we were loving it. But anyway... Especially because it didn't impact our, my wallet. But anyway, tomorrow is the 4th of July, a day to celebrate the founding of our great country and to remember those in our past that worked to create this nation, this nation that would be independent from Great Britain uh, with this Declaration of Independence. John Adams was quoted as saying that this day will be, quote, the most memorable epic in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this great continent to the other from this time forward and forevermore. And that was almost a prophetic <laughs> statement that actually came true. Truly, that was a great day, and it is still a great day that we should be thankful for. And the centuries that had led up to that day in 1776 had many people had given or lost their lives in pursuit of worshiping their God in a free land, away from the British monarchy and the Church of England and the, church, the Catholic Church of that day. And if we were to take any time to read of that people that, that left seeking this, this new land, say the pilgrims or other people of those days that were about a century prior to the Declaration of Independence, we find a people that had counted the cost. They had considered what it was going to take if they were going to pursue this freedom to worship their God. And they were willing to take drastic measures and, and take the circumstances that would befall them head on for their decision to follow their God. And today I'm going to try to pick up the baton here that Kevin has left off. I'm going to continue with our study of First Peter. For those who have been with us over the last, I don't know, four, five, six months, Peter, or Kevin's been walking through First Peter. And so I'm going to pick that up, and it's very fitting for the section we're coming to, because as we sit here and remember this weekend, remembering God's work, as John Adams said, to deliver a people, a work to help a people that were fleeing Europe in hopes for an independent place to worship God, knowing that their pursuit might cost them their lives, we're going to see in our passage today a call to have the mindset to be prepared, a mindset that is ready for the challenges that a life that is attached to Christ, what that may befall. And we're going to have a little fun. We're going to go back to the 1500s in one little side journey. We'll take a little journey over to the Death Star in one section and look at a little section from the Death Star. And we'll also take 
a little lesson from Top Gun. So we'll try to balance around. Some of these might be sort of brief journeys, but nonetheless, you'll, you'll see them when I get there. Um, and hopefully that'll add a little bit of relief from some of the, some of the weight of this. But in, nonetheless, let's stand as we read this critical section of Peter's letter to the believers scattered throughout Asia Minor in 64 AD, facing various trials and persecutions, both within the government, within their workplaces, and in some cases, even in their own homes and marriages. So he says this in 1 Peter 4, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Lord, we come before you. We do thank you for this opportunity. We want to honor your word as we stand to read it. May you use your spirit who you told us would guide us into truth. May you take these words from Peter and put them into our hearts. May they impact us. Even though we may not live in a day of extreme physical persecution, may we know that there's truth in, in, in an attitude that we're called to live under. And may we glean that from these words. And may you spur us on to have that heart and that mindset of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you do these great things now. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may be seated. So, Peter starts out with a therefore, and those of you that have ever been with me when we try to study the scriptures, I always sort of take notes when I get to a therefore, and I always sort of look at it as if it's the writer saying, in light of what I've just been telling you about, in light of the truths I've just brought before you, here are some things you need to know going forward. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening here. And it requires us to then pause before we look at chapter 4 and remember the key points that, he's, that he just brought up in chapter 3. He's just made a key point that suffering for doing right could very well be God's will for them. And not only that, he says it will be good. That is a good thing when they have to go through that. And then he put before them Christ as the paramount example of one who suffered, yet he did no wrong. He had no sin. Remember what he said, the just dying for the unjust. As we read in 1 Peter 3 at the end in 17, he says, for it is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. That would be God the Father. 
having been put to death in the flesh, speaking of Christ, but made alive in the Spirit. This act of Christ, his willingness to suffer and to die for sin, resulted in an absolutely incredible blessing for us that believe. And namely, that it can allow us to be brought to God the Father. I don't know if you understand the magnitude of that. He came so that he could bring us to God the Father. And he said that after his resurrection to his disciples, that my Father can now be your Father. How awesome it is to know that we have been brought to God the Father through the suffering and the death of Christ made that possible. But also resulted in an incredible blessing and honor for Christ himself who Peter says at the very end of his book, of chapter 3, he says, sits, speaking of Christ, he sits at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So the basic equation Peter has presented is this. Christ plus suffering for doing what was right equals incredible, great blessing both for him and those who believe in him. And if you recall also in verse 21 of chapter 3 brings in baptism to these believers and that baptism that's a big deal your attachment with Christ's death burial and resurrection that gives you this access brings you to God and we'll see builds on that going into four and now I think he gets to chapter four and he's wanting to get across a key application he's made the doctrinal truths clear Christ suffered for doing what was right Resulted in incredible blessing. Praise the Lord. Now, what does that mean to apply that and live that in the first century in 64 AD? And what does that mean to live in 2022? I believe chapter 4, his main application is building them and preparing them for what he's going to call a fiery ordeal. He's preparing them for themselves to go through even further suffering, further persecution from the Roman Empire and various powers that be. He calls it in 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. So I believe this chapter is preparing him for that. So therefore, in light of Christ, his suffering and his willingness to go to the cross and suffer in the flesh, he says, arm yourselves also with the same purpose and the same mind. Now, most commentators in the NASB, if you have the NASB, you'll see a little note next to the term suffered in the flesh. And most commentators believe that that is actually referring back to what he just said in 3.18. Christ physically dying in the flesh. He suffered physically in the flesh. And he's going to bring up the flesh, this Greek word sarx, three times in one sentence. And most believe that what he's getting at here is real physical flesh. Not, all, not necessarily the flesh that Paul talks about, which is that that tendency and propensity to sin, but he's actually talking about real-world death, physical death in the flesh and suffering in the flesh uh, in real life on this earth. And it's in this willingness to suffer in the flesh to the point of death that Peter says should therefore now be a motivator to, the, to his readers, that should motivate them to arm themselves, he says. Now, this arm themselves term is actually a pretty powerful 
Greek word. If you were to go back and look at it, it's a word that's used uh, in the military sense of taking up armor, taking up weapons, preparing diligently for war. This would not be something like, well, just do what you need to do to get ready. To a Greek person reading this, they would understand this would take action. This would take diligence to do what he's saying to do in mind and purpose. You know, this is where we'll take a little journey over to Top Gun for a second because we happened to go see Top Gun a few weeks ago and we watched it and I took my older kids and, uh, you know, I happen to really like the movie. I thought it was a cool movie. I like military movies. I, you know, worked as a defense contractor. I liked working on aircraft and stuff and worked on the avionics. That's awesome stuff. So I, I, I love the movie. And we come out after the movie and one of my kids is like, ah, it's just sort of so-so. And it, it erupted into this huge debate. We had, we had probably a 30-minute discussion. Got a little bit heated, actually. But anyway, we're debating. I was like, oh, this is incredible. And anyway, the argument was proposed or put out there against the movie that, well, you know, they really didn't build up the conflict enough. They didn't make the enemy. It just, it was sort of the side story. And, and I was like, well, that's, that's the whole key is that they, they had to make the little conflict just to have a conflict in the story. But the whole story is about Top Gun, the training of the pilots. I was like, look at all the training they did, hour after hour, drill after drill, trying to press on and make sure they're ready to handle the G-forces and all the different things that they're going to have to face and the, the, the situational awareness that, that they call, the pilots call that, all the cockpit have to deal with all these situations that might befall them. And it's that sort of attitude of being prepared and being ready, a military term. You've got to think. You've got to be ready. You've got to take action. You've got to arm yourself to have the mind and purpose of Christ. It's going to be like the top gun. You've got to, you've got to you know, work at this. You're not just going to have it naturally. You can't just send these fighter pilots out there haphazardously. And it's no wonder that when the U.S. has gone into wars in recent decades, and we've been faced with conflicts, it's no wonder that we fare pretty well in the skies. Not only do we have good aircraft, but we've done a lot to arm ourselves. We've equipped our pilots well, and so they show up and they perform well. Now, verse 2 gives us a good clue as to what this prepared mind or, or pur purpose should focus on. He gives you two things. He gives you the negative. He says, not for the lusts of men, but then he gives you the positive. But on the will of God the Father. That's what the purpose and mind should focus on as it's being armed and ready. Christ's mind and his purpose, I would contend, was laser focused on following the will of God the Father in absolutely everything that he did. And I want to make this case so you can see it. If we turn through the book of John, you'll see this. In Christ, in his judgment, he focused on the Father's will. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In his speech, as he walked on the earth, in his speech, he focused on the will of his Father. John 12, 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. In his very mission, 
to come to the earth. He was focused on his Father's will. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In his very works, the things he went and did while he was on the earth was to focus on the Father's will. John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and get this, to accomplish his work. And in his goal to glorify God the Father, he was focused on his Father's will. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In his very willingness to give up his life, he's focused on the will of the Father. John 10, 18, he says this, no one has taken it, that's speaking of his life, away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Get this, this commandment I received from my Father. What commandment? The commandment to go lay down your life. And he's saying, I'm going to follow through with his commandment. And I will willingly choose, volitionally choose to lay my life down to, to meet his will, the Father's will. And to Peter's point in this exact chapter 4 of 1 Peter, in Christ's suffering and his death on the cross, taking the wrath of God, in that he too laser focused on doing the will of the Father. He says in Matthew 26, 39, he went a little bit outside of the, the disciples as they were up in the Garden of Gethsemane and he fell on his face and he cried out and prayed and said, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then a little while later, a second time, he prays again, my Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. His whole mind and purpose was focused on the will of God the Father. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, it says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because I believed his mind was armed and prepared with the purpose of living his life for the will of his Father. And I would contend what Peter is telling us and to the believers in 64 AD is so should we. So should we have that same attitude. Peter just said in 3.17, if God should will it, if God the Father should will it, that you should suffer for doing what is right, that is good. And in 4.14, he's going to continue the thought, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and, and of God rests upon you. Now you read these things and you think this through and you say, this is a tough call. It's a tough call and it's a high call. And we'll get to how it applies in a second in 2022 right here, you know, in Brookline, Missouri. But the reality is you have to say, this is a big call to say, I'm going to lay down my life and maybe even have to suffer possibly even die for my commitment to what Christ has called me to. And, and yet, this is what Peter's, Peter's after. And, it, and I can't help but think that those that have gone before us, some that have had to live this out, I have to think they were holding on to passages just like this, 
when they had to face things. I couldn't help but think about a guy that I was recently sort of directed to or pointed out named William Tyndale. How many people have ever read anything on William Tyndale? Few hands. Now, how many of people here, another question, how many people here have an English Bible? Not in Greek, not in Latin, but in English. Maybe right on you, maybe it's in your pocket, on your phone. I was sort of hoping I'd get a good, solid group of people that had Bibles with them. I was hoping you'd show up to church with your Bibles. But William Tyndale grew up in a time period when it wasn't legal to have an English Bible like this. In fact, at least not in England, and it wasn't legal to even think about translating or attempting to translate any of the, of the Latin into the English. It would be around 1494 when he was born. But God had a plan for Tyndale. God had a will for Tyndale to use him that ultimately formed the foundation of every single English Bible that we have in existence. But Tyndale would have to take this section of 1 Peter 4 and he was going to have to live it out. He was going to have to live it out to the nth degree. You see, the Church of England and the Catholic Church in the 1500s had deemed it such that only the clergy could interpret and read Scripture. And they only had the Latin version, so they didn't want any, anything in, you know, outside of the Latin because then that would, they don't want it to be translated into English. That was a way of control. Uh, but Tyndale felt called. He felt called that, you know, as he was studying, and you got to also get the picture, at the age of 12, he started at Oxford. He ended up learning eight languages, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, several others. And as he read different things, he became fascinated with the scriptures. And it just so happened that he was taught Greek by a guy named Erasmus. Just so happened that Erasmus had just completed sort of transcribing the, the New Testament into Greek. And so he's sitting here, fascinated and clearly moved by the Spirit, and he's reading it, and he goes, oh, everyone should have access to this. Everyone should be able to read these words in the common tongue. And so he dedicated his life to translating from the Greek, not the Latin, into English. Now we know that he, he had to count the costs, he had to face the reality that to do so would mean direct you know, conflict with the, the government, King Henry VIII, and the church. And sure it was, they called him a heretic, and they, they, were, they sought after him. Now, fortunately, he went to Germany, and he began working. There was a, a, a bit wealthy businessman that supported him. And he went down to Germany, and he met up with a guy that was running a very early printing press. It was a brand new invention at that time. And it really had never been used to print the Bible or any, anything really like it. It was brand new. And he started working with him. He began to translate diligently all the Greek into, the, into English. And then he made these little Tyndale pocket New Testaments. They had to be small because if you were caught with one of these things, you're sure to die or be imprisoned. And he began sending those back to England. Of course, as England found out, they began to have, they, they would raid people's homes and confiscate the Bibles and burn them and take people and imprison them, including the wealthy businessman that had even supported Tyndale. 
The story goes on, and he learned Hebrew, and he began translating the Old Testament, and worked and worked, but eventually the Lord allowed the evil forces that be to get, find out where he was, and they uncovered his plan, and they, from, these were people coming in from England down into Germany to get him, and they arrested him, and they tried him as a heretic. They said he was a heretic, that he had all these heirs and was his, his translations, probably because they were all reading Latin and not the original Greek like he was. But nonetheless, they burned him at the stake, strangled him for what he had done. But I'm thankful for what he, what he did because they, they say that after he died, actually right before, he was, while he was dying, he prayed that the king of England's eyes would be opened, that he would see the need for this word to go out to the common people. And sure enough, God answered Tyndale's prayer, for only a few years later, the king of England decided, yeah, there's something to this. We do need to translate this for the people. And he made at first what was called the Great Bible. That then led to another translation that was very, very close called the Matthew Bible that derived almost entirely from Tyndale's work, which then ended up being used as the foundational basis for the King James Version, which today it is estimated 83% of the King James Version in the New Testament, 83% of the New Testament were Tyndale's translated words. 76% of the Old Testament in the King James Version were Tyndale's translated words. The, the guys that worked on the NASB, the NIV, the ESV, you can read their quotes. They all said, we take incredible you know, encouragement and stem a lot of our work from a guy named William Tyndale who gave his life so that we might be able to have this and read it in English. It says, a brilliant theologian and a gifted linguist, Tyndale was fluent in eight languages, including Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Without a doubt, God had equipped William Tyndale for the mission he would fulfill in his short, 42-year, short but laser-focused life. Tyndale's story is largely unknown by Christians today, but his impact on English translations of the Bible is greater than anyone else in history. That's what I was reading from some historians and Bible translators. So when we pick up our Bibles, we need to remember someone gave their life, their blood. They lived out what Peter said. He was armed and ready. He had the mind of Christ. He said, I'm going to follow the will of God the Father. I feel a calling. I've been educated in these languages. I feel a calling that everyone should be able to read this and be able to put it into their hearts so that they too can know Jesus. And he died for it. But I'm sure he's now, as we'll see as we go further in chapter 4, there's a glorification that will come for knowing Jesus on the other side of, of death. But back in 1 in Peter... You could ask ourselves, or we could ask ourselves the question, why, Peter, do you want us to be so ready and equipped and armed and prepared with the same mind and purpose as Christ Jesus? This willingness, readiness to suffer. And Peter gives us two sort of because or for statements. And I always like to sort of look at the logical flow. He gives you a for and a because. He tells you why you should have this attitude. And the first one is, it impacts our struggle with sin. 
If you read in verse 1, it says, because, so you arm yourself with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, there's sort of two aspects of this statement that I want us to look at. The first one is what I call the Obi-Wan Kenobi principle. So we're going to take a a short journey for a second to the Death Star. You remember Obi-Wan Kenobi fighting against Darth Vader. It's like the climax. As a little kid, I was watching it. You know, it's like, oh man, Obi-Wan, just swing it through Darth Vader. Just take him out. But he says, if you strike me down, I'll only become more powerful. You remember that? He just sort of yields his lightsaber up. Vader strikes through him. Well, there's this principle there that I know that's just a movie and that's all fictitious. But the idea that when one physically dies in the flesh, a literal physical dying of the flesh, an ending to the the curse of death in the sense that the wages of sin is death. And you have to one day meet a physical death that's appointed all to die. But when you reach that point and you get to the other side, guess what? There is a literal ceasing from sin for all time and eternity. Just like Paul would say, for me to die, it's nothing but absolute gain. And he makes that clear. But there's another aspect in this verse too that I want to say when it says, he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And this sort of turns our attention more towards our attachment to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Because our attachment to that puts us in a position such that even now, even before we get to that physical death, we can actually live in a way that's freed from sin. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin." That's for the believer today, in the now, in living on this earth, knowing that we've been set free from the bondage to sin. And thus, we can walk, no longer having to obey all of its propensities and desires. A second thing that that Peter gives us here as to why we should be armed and ready is he brings up this concept of like, he says, look, you've had enough time. You've had enough time to live life pursuing the lusts of the Gentiles. You get that? Remember I said, he gives you two roads in verse one. He said, in verse two, he said, you can keep going down the road of pursuing the lusts of men. That's not the right road, but rather pursue the will of God the Father. So here he's saying, you've already had enough time to pursue that other road. And therefore, he's telling us to turn away from that road. Don't go back to that way. This is sort of like what you do with your kids. You know, you you let them, you say, well, you can do what you want to do for a little while, but there, when it gets to enough time, it's like, time out. It's, it's time for you to listen to what I have for you to do now. Now, that one, maybe that they're doing nothing wrong, whereas Peter here, if you read his list, it's pretty, it's pretty scathing. Uh, he gets into some 
six of these different activities that he, that he sort of describes these, this road, this, this other Gentile, the lusts of the Gentiles that they're after. And he comes down pretty hard. He uses words like sensuality or a Greek word meaning licentiousness or wantonness. This idea of unbridled, unrestrained sin and excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. He uses lust, this idea of passionate longing for something or someone. Drunkenness, a Greek word meaning an overflow of wine or debauchery. Carousing, a Greek word meaning revelries or this carousing as if letting loose, having no restraint. Drinking parties, which the Greek means drinking parties. (laughs) Abominable idolatries, which is two Greek words, lawless worship of other things and images that aren't God. And he says, you had a chance to partake in that. Don't go back to that. You know where it leads. It's not you now. That's not you in Christ now. And you know, when we stop and we think of that list, and you think, we, we've, we know what those things lead to. You'd say, well, they might lead to short-term pleasure, but I can tell you they lead to death. Like it says, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end therein is death. I remember when I was in college, a lot of, the, as I was reading these, these terms, it, I couldn't, couldn't help but recall to mind days in college where I saw guys just living it up. They were, for the first time, not with mom and dad, they could just do whatever they wanted to do. I saw guys, you know, coming in into the room, and one night my roommate throwing up, vomiting, drunken, all these things. I remember one time a guy that I knew got so drunk that, you know, he was coming home on campus, flew off the road, nailed a stop sign, crushed the front of the car, broke the radiator, proceeded to somehow get get back on the road, drove on home, leaving a telltale sign of antifreeze right to his car, stumbled into the house, goes to bed, and of course, a few hours later, you get the knock from the police officer saying, well, we found a, a down stop sign up on campus. We've had a pretty easy trail to follow here. We have a pretty obvious vehicle that's been crushed. Who's the owner of this vehicle? I mean, you don't, you know, at the time, you're just living it up. But at the end of the day, it led to consequences for that individual. And we are called to make this shift away, turn away, don't go down that road, but set your mind on the will of God. Now, when we make that shift, the turning away from the normal desires of man and turn to the desires of God the Father, how does the world respond? How are they going to respond when you've been with them for several years, maybe your whole life, partying it up with them, doing whatever, just living your sensual life, just buying whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, however you wanted, not thinking of others, not thinking of having the mind of Christ. How are they going to respond then when they see that? Peter tells us, in all of this, they are surprised that you no longer run and dive in with them in the same excesses of dissipation. That dissipation word is a word that just means unsavedness. Their willingness to just walk away from the plan of God and God's open door of salvation. And they end up maligning you, it says in verse 4. The natural man will be surprised 
When the believer now living this changed life no longer rushes together, hastily assembles with them, or headlong dives in with them. That's what that Greek word running with them. But they, they won't get it. You'd say, well, why wouldn't they get it? Well, just stop and think about it. If you're just a natural man, why would one give up life on this earth of just living it up, the pleasures of life, the great, all the great things, the sensualities, the things you can, and give it all up and maybe even have to suffer and die like a William Tyndale or Jesus of Nazareth, all for some commitment to an invisible God that you can't see or feel in the normal physical sense? Why would you want to do that? Seems like foolishness to us. And so therefore they're surprised. And they then begin to malign those of us that are saying, no, we're not going to walk that path. But Peter gives an answer to that. He gives an encouragement to these first century believers that I think would still be true today. Don't forget that when they malign you, they will face the judge. They will face the one that's ready right now, he says, Peter says, he's ready to judge the living and the dead. And they will give an account. The Bible makes it clear, Old Testament, New Testament alike. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Romans 14, 10, even speaking to believers. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And this one in Matthew 12, 36, Jesus speaking. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give as an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Every careless word, they'll give an account. Do you think they'll have to give an account for their maligning words to believers that have stood firm? I believe they will. And there's another thing I, I want to, if, if you've ever lived your life and you have faced this sort of verbal malignment, someone just casting an insult at you, there's another thing to remember. Not only will they, those folks at the end of the age, unless they come to Christ, they will face judgment for that. A second thing, do you remember the last of the Beatitudes? The final Beatitude says, blessed are you when those come and insult you in my name's sake. Because he says, guess what? Rejoice, he says, because you will be blessed in heaven as a result of that. So if you've ever been there and walked through this, know that there's an end to this. There's an end for those that malign, and there's an end that is glorification for those that are walking in Christ. Whether alive or dead, God will judge. All will give an account. Now in verse 6, we'll get to this more next time, in contrast to those who malign the believer and thus have to face the judge, we're given a view in verse 6 of the effectiveness of the gospel to those who have died in the past. It's an aorist past tense. But now they've been made alive in the Spirit, just like Christ had said in verse 18, died but has now been made alive in the Spirit. Even though they were judged in the flesh, they've died in the flesh, they've now been made alive. So we'll get to that next week when we go on in this passage. But I want to stop before I close and just throw out a couple thoughts. Because if you're like me, you've sat and, and listened to sermons before about suffering. And if you're like me and you've lived in the United States from the day you were born until right now, July 3rd, 
2022, you may have never had to face physical, fleshly persecution for what you believe or for standing firm and having the mind of Christ. And I get that. You'd say, well, Joel, you know, you told us all about Tyndale. You took, what, you took 15 minutes of your sermon to tell us about Tyndale, but I don't have to live like Tyndale right now. I'm not facing that kind of persecution. I'd say, well, I understand that. But I would, I would contend there's a lot still for us to glean, and there's several points I want to make in closing about why we should be careful with that line of thinking. You know, a lot of times we'll respond to that line of things. Oh, time out. There's as many persecuted today as there ever have been. And I get that. And that is true. But you'd still, if you're sitting right here today, say, that's true, Joel. But what about someone right here next to M Highway and Farm Road 115 in Missouri? Not having to face that kind of imprisonment and persecution. You say, well, I'll give you four things. I'll give you four things to think about. The first one is, we do face a type of persecution. And are we going to bow to it and just roll over? Or are we going to arm ourselves and be ready for it? And that persecution is an intellectual persecution. It's one of, in what I believe, one of the largest forms of persecution in this church in the United States today is intellectual persecution from the culture around us. Attacking believers that hold to Christ, they may not attack them physically, but they will berate them intellectually. They will assault them intellectually, making anyone who had claimed to believe in Jesus out to be a fool of the utmost degree. Oh, you believe in God? Well, do you believe in the tooth fairy too? I mean, it's this sort of thinking, and it's gone on in our culture, and it's getting worse. It's getting worse as we face that intellectual persecution, and it's good to remember what Jesus taught about the parable of the sower. The evil one in the world will continue to persecute and attack anyone that shows any inkling of belief. Because if they can cut them off at the knees of their belief, they're, they're doomed for the lake of fire. Remember what he said when explaining, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is the one in whom the seed was sown beside the road. How does the evil one do it? They start to have a little bit of growth. They start to have a little bit of belief. Attacks. Intellectual attacks. You can't believe that. You can't believe Genesis 1. You can't believe Genesis 2. Darwin's disproved that. All kinds of intellectual attacks. Cut them off at the knees. And what does Jesus say? The one sown along the side of the road. It doesn't end up producing any fruit. And doesn't grow. The one on whom the seed was sown by the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. He says, yeah, there's something in there that I believe is true. Starts down that road with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself. It's only temporary. And when the affliction and the persecution arises because of the word, because they've started to believe this word, immediately they fall away. They face this intellectual attack in this culture and they have no ground, they have no firm root and they fall away. I had a quote that I, that I think is a good one. It says, if the Christian stands up for traditional marriage, if the Christian stands up against abortion, if the Christian today stands up or holds to the exclusivity of Christianity, the idea that Christ is the one way, truth and the life, or if a Christian stands up and claims the reality of the eternal punishment, there's no call 
this, this individual says, for debate or serious interaction from the world, it'll be met with attack. Ad hominem attacks immediately. That, my friends, is the intellectual persecution we face. And I would say we should be armed. We should be ready with the right mind and purpose to handle that. A second one, real fast, is the idea that just because you may not face physical persecution from the world in the classic sense of being enchained and put into prison or even killed at the stake, remember there are spiritual powers that at times are allowed to persecute people of the faith. Do you remember the main book of the Old Testament that its whole point is to argue from the wisdom literature why suffering was the book of Job. And what can we learn from Job? A man that never knew fully why he was suffering. And yet we saw, we can all read it and see the bigger picture. He was suffering at the hand of Satan due to his firm conviction and belief in God. And thus, as a result of his suffering, this was on display for all of the spiritual realm to witness and behold. Thus, when you encounter various hardships and you've done no wrong to deserve it, just like Job, may not be the imprisonment, but some other hardship that the Lord has allowed, you don't know when it could be persecution from evil forces in the spiritual realm that your life can be a witness to your family, to your friends, to your colleagues. How are they going to handle that? Are they going to have the right mind of Christ to walk through that? Are they going to continue to submit and walk in that? Are they going to curse God and die like Satan wanted Job to do. Job plus suffering without sin, because he didn't sin, it's clear, was a witness to the spiritual powers. We'll look next time at how the church plus the suffering of the church also is a witness to the angelic powers. A third thing and a fourth thing I'll hit on real fast that we'll do dive into much more next time is I believe that there's strong possibility that we will face persecution in the years and days to come. I don't know for certain. I'm not a prophet. I can't claim to know exactly where this culture and this country is going. But it certainly looks like individuals who do firmly hold to Christ Jesus as the one, the only way, truth, and life. People that call out sin for being sin. People who live for holiness, purity, and a denial of sensuality of man we may well become not only the targets of intellectual persecution, but one day an actual physical type of persecution. You lose your job. You might not be able to buy that. You might not be able to trade that anymore. You may, you may not be able to travel to this specific location anymore. I don't know. I'm just saying it could happen. So be ready. And the fourth thing is there's an eschatological perspective in the Scriptures that we'll look at next time. Peter will look at it 1 Peter, Peter and 2 Peter have, an, have this eschatology thread through the whole thing that we would be remiss if we don't see it. Peter constantly was looking for the return of Christ and the future glorification. And marked with that, if we go look at some passages, is the clear reality of a time of tribulation, a time of persecution of the saints. So this view of being called to be armed and ready is not something just for 64 AD. It's something for us now today to be armed and to be ready and have the mind of Christ. 
We've just read, you know, you look at this, this call that Peter's given us. And he likens us and points us back to Christ. He tells him to be, be ready, to be like Christ, to see how Christ walked his life, submitting to the will of the Father as it led up to his death on the cross, willing to suffer in the flesh and give his life for us. And I see no more fitting way to end this little section of 1 Peter than to commemorate and to remember the sacrifice that Christ gave, the blood that he shed for you and I, that we can take time to remember that. We here at Christ Community Church, we, we, we have communion. The elements are in the corners of the room. If you haven't grabbed them, please get up and grab them. I will tell you that the bread does not taste or feel or seem anything like bread, but it, it seems like some sort of a mysterious cardboard substance. But nonetheless, we do want to take time to remember this, to remember his willingness to suffer and die in the flesh because that's what Peter's calling us to have that same mind. But it didn't come without a price for both the Father and the Son. Now communion is something that's open to anyone who believes in Jesus. Open to anyone who is attached to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 11, it's not something to trifle with. It's not something to look lightly upon. He says everyone should examine himself or herself as they take the bread and the cup. So let's take some time to remember what the Lord did for us and to examine ourselves.